The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. When Lisa Guy failed to show up for work after Thanksgiving weekend, a wellness check led to a discovery straight out of a horror movie. The bodies of Lisa and Joel Guy dismembered and scattered across the house. A handwritten note, dubbed by prosecutors as the Book of Premeditation, led police to arrest someone incredibly close to the victims, their own son, Joel Guy Jr. I'm Vinnie Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have an audio edition of our original series, Someone They Knew, with Tamron Hall. This episode is entitled, Holiday Horror. Have a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast. an employee that has not reported for work today and how we unlike her. As the detective got closer, what he saw will forever change his life. I completely froze. The first words out of my mouth were, oh my God. I think you probably consider me dead. Lisa and Joel Guy loved their children, so it was a joyous occasion when all of them gathered for a family Thanksgiving dinner in 2016 at Lisa and Joel's bucolic home in suburban Knoxville, Tennessee. They were thankful for each other and for the parents' upcoming retirement from work that would give them even more time to spend with their children and their grandchildren. But that weekend, those dreams were crushed by a horrific tragedy that will haunt everyone involved for the rest of their lives. In this area, we have our share of garden variety crime. It just seems in East Tennessee, when people get mad enough to kill, they just do it in some really fascinating ways. Not police communication. Uh, yes, I have an employee that has not reported for work today, and how I unlike her. Lisa Guy did not show up for work after Thanksgiving, and that was extremely unusual. I've tried calling her home number, I've tried calling cell phone, and can't get a hold of her. She had a retirement party that she was supposed to be going to. She was not re returning any phone calls or text messages. She is leaving our company, but that's supposed to be Friday, and this definitely isn't like her just not to show up. Okay, what's the employee's name? Lisa. Guy. Her husband's name is Joel. Joel Guy Sr. was employed as an engineer. He worked in pipe fitting. So he was a smart guy, but also a little bit of a working class type. You know, he liked fishing and hunting and outdoor things like that. Lisa Guy, for many years, was a stay-at-home mom and really was dedicated to raising her children. It was only as the kids got up and out that she started working. Lisa and Joel had a fabulously successful marriage. They were very much in love, and they had planned the next chapter of their life. They were really looking forward to moving to a more country place. 
so that they could start really enjoying uh, time together. People don't miss their retirement parties. I felt it necessary to go out there myself. When a couple of deputies went to see if there was anything amiss, one of the things they noticed is that there were vehicles still there. If you stuck your head and looked in the windows, there was groceries right there in the landing. Most people carry their groceries in, not leave them right there. So that was alarming. I decided to go to the back porch, and I noticed that the glass door was extremely warm. They could smell this overpowering kind of chemical, can't put your finger on it, smell. One of the guys on the scene pushed the garage door open, and that's when a lot of heat came out of the garage door. I made entry first into the residence. Going in, it was, I mean, it was hot as can be. The heat had been turned up, and there were heaters on. This is winter, and inside that house, it was you know, 90, 100 degrees. I immediately went into the kitchen, and that's where I noticed a large pot on the stove with an extreme amount of heat coming from the stove. And as you start up the stairwell, you can start noticing brown substance staining, we believe to be blood splatter. It's blood, right? There's clearly blood on the landing, cast off on the walls, signs of some sort of struggle. There is a dog that is barking, and it's apparent that the dog is, is upstairs. It will bark, and then it would stop. In my experience, when there are unknown people inside of a residence, the only time a dog stops barking is when somebody's telling it to. We did not know if there was another human being inside the residence. Not When you get up to the top of the stairs, there's a pile of clothing with a large pooling of blood. And down the hallway, you can see something. Is that people's hands? That's what it looks like. Uh, hands. At the end of the hallway, I could see severed hands sitting in the corner of the bedroom. They were cut from the wrist, just like somebody just set them right there. They do appear to have been staged or placed in a praying position. Now, what that meant or signified, only the mind of the killer knows. I entered a room that was used as a storage area for materials to include chemicals, and I noticed that the master bedroom had a master bathroom. They see a hose that was hooked to the shower, which is really unusual, but something that you would see in a morgue. Nobody on that scene expected to walk into what they saw. There's these big Rubbermaid tubs that are filled with some kind of water or chemical. I completely froze. Uh, I believe the first words out of my mouth were, oh my god. That's where we located two tubs inside of a master bath with what appeared to be human remains in some kind of liquid form. We all stepped out and had to take a deep breath. And what we really saw is that is that true or is that, is that real? There's no amount of law enforcement training that could have prepared me for walking into that room and seeing and experiencing not just the visual sight, but the odor, the, the overall feeling of what I saw. To see the carnage and these deliberate moves to cut up body of stagehands and all that, I mean, my goodness, is, do we have some kind of crazy serial killer at loose, you know? Is he still around somewhere? The barking dog 
was confined to a room in the hallway. We decided to make sure we had enough personnel that if somebody was in that room, we would have enough people to deal with them adequately. We went ahead and made entry and it ended up being a small room, no one there, so we secured the dog. And then as they walked toward the kitchen, there was a big pot on the stove and it had something in it. We did not see what was in the pot yet. They were able to look at surveillance footage. That's when they get the first glimpse of who their suspect likely is. Nothing could have prepared the officers of the Knox County Sheriff's Department for the carnage they discovered at the home of Lisa and Joel Guy. But as shocked as they were, the worst was yet to come. The kitchen is where we located a big pot on the stove, and the stove was still on. As the detective got closer to that stove, what he saw will forever change his life. It was Mrs. Guy's severed head that was boiling in that stock pot that I would walked by less than 10 minutes ago. It's horrific that you would think that somebody could do this. I'm the one that actually found the pot on the stove, and you legitimately will see that forever. You go down an aisle at Kmart, Walmart, Target, I don't care where you're at, if you're looking at pots and pans, that's immediately where your head will go. This is the worst scene and case that I've ever worked in my entire career. And my specific role as the lead investigator was to determine who did this, where they are, and how to get them. To get them off the streets so that they could not do it again. We went through and started collecting evidence. When you go past the guest bedroom, there was a guest bathroom in the hallway, and that hallway bathroom was a butcher room. There is a sign of a struggle inside the room where the severed hands were located. Those ended up being Mr. Guy's hands. And of course, in the corner of the room where the hands were located, was just it was just saturated with blood. There was plastic all over the place. There were bandages where somebody had obviously injured themselves and had rendered their own first aid. There was a large knife that was very similar to a, a K-bar. Something absolutely horrific occurred right there. There was many different chemicals. There's like liquid fire, there's Drano, like a commercial grade. There's hammers, there's hoses, there's some guns, there's timers, gas cans with gas in the garage. There was a bag from Walmart, which is just down the road from the guy residence. Inside that bag was a receipt, and it had a date and time on it. I took a photograph of the receipt, got that data off of it. I also took a photograph of the receipt that was with the bags of groceries at the threshold. And I looked at my partner, and I said, I'll be back. I went straight to the Walmart, knocked on their security door, hoping somebody was there running the cameras, and thankfully there was. They were able to look at surveillance footage that Walmart had. So what they were able to determine is that Lisa Guy had gone and bought those groceries, but also that's when they get the first glimpse of who their suspect likely is. At the time, we see a young, balding, 
guy that has bandages on his hand, and we don't really know who he is at the time. He was inside the Walmart making the the purchase of the items that we recovered upstairs inside the residence, and it showed that he obviously had uh, injuries to himself. He was by rubbing alcohol. He bought peroxide. He brought some bandages. He bought items that you know would be indicative of wiping down and cleaning up a crime scene. I reached out to Michelle Dennison to identify her parents, Elisa and Joel Guy. She gave us a time frame of the last time she saw them and where her and her children and her boyfriend at the time had actually come to the Guy residence on Thanksgiving Day and had Thanksgiving dinner with the family. Her brother was there, Joel Jr. The family was gathered for the final time for Thanksgiving in their home. Lisa and Joel were about to sell their home, put their fortune in going and creating a new life. Everybody got along and everybody went their own ways. And it was just the parents, Joel and Lisa and Joel Jr. when she left. Joel Jr. was going to stay on for at least a day or two before going back to Louisiana. What was unusual about this particular Thanksgiving was that Joel Guy Jr. showed up. Joe Guy Jr., since he was young, felt estranged from his family, insisted that they put him in a boarding school. Joe Guy Jr. was your stereotypical nerd. He made a career out of going to school, studying. He was a 28-year-old man. He was still attending Louisiana State University and working on obtaining his undergraduate degree from, from that institution. Mom and Dad supported every bit of his lifestyle. They paid for college, they paid for the apartment, they paid for everyday groceries or anything extra that he needed. The entirety of his mother's check essentially went into his checking account. So the sole purpose that Lisa Guy worked was to fund Joel Guy Jr.'s living expenses and lifestyle. Joel and Lisa were gonna retire and they were cutting Joel Guy Jr. off of funds. Joel Guy Jr. became aware at some point before Thanksgiving likely in a conversation with his mother that his mother and his father planned to cut him off financially. His sisters were at the residence for Thanksgiving. And based on our conversations with the sisters, we were then able to identify Joel Guy Jr. as a potential suspect. It was through this conversation that we learned that was him at the Walmart picture. It was the guy's son. You have to let that sink in, that it's their own child. We have to follow every lead. In this case, every lead pointed to Joel Guy Jr. A backpack was discovered, and in the backpack was a notebook. This detailed, what I call a murder book, as you can see, it just breaks my heart. Surveillance video shows that the person who bought the supplies found at the crime scene was none other than the son of the victims, Lisa and Joel Guy. But there is even more damning evidence about to be discovered. In going through the residence and securing evidence, a backpack was discovered in the guest bedroom that was upstairs. And in the backpack was a notebook. And in the notebook, it was a full itinerary of basically laying out the murders of Joe Guy Jr.'s parents. This detailed, what I call a murder book, where it was very clear 
that he had charted out weeks in advance what he was going to do, what supplies he needed to do it. It was a full itinerary of kill dad first, then mom, how to do it. What we dubbed as the book of premeditation was essentially entries that Joel Guy was going to do in order to effectuate the plan to kill his parents and to liquefy them, put them in the public waterway, and then to set the residents on fire. The hammer is to crush bones that'll go down the drain. Brought a meat grinder, which was located in the vehicle, to get rid of the human remains. We found in the murder book the parental assets as far as the life insurance policies, the residences that they owned, and what he would receive. Joel Guy Jr. was so put off by the fact that his parents would cut him off financially that he put a plan into motion to collect on a $500,000 life insurance policy so he could continue living without having to work. It wasn't just, I'm going to get life insurance. It was, he has studied these policies. And what he's determined is that in order for him to have the biggest bang for his buck, that dad needs to be dead first. If dad is killed first and then mom, then he'll get X amount as opposed to if the order were reversed or they would kill both at the same time. So he had done the math on how much he could collect. Michelle Dennison disclosed to me about the intentions of the family to cut him off financially as soon as Lisa was finished with her job and retiring. He was the sole beneficiary of a life insurance policy that would only be in place while she was still employed. So he had to kill her before she retired. Otherwise, he wouldn't get a payout that was just his. He had that notebook in his backpack while he's having dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, with his parents. This whole time that they're eating and smiling and chatting, he's got, you know, the plans up there in the bedroom. What I was so overwhelmed by is that Lisa Guy goes to Walmart to buy her son his favorite ice cream. He wanted a certain kind of ice cream. So she goes and she does that because she loves him. While Mrs. Guy was gone shopping, Joe Guy Jr. killed Mr. Guy. Joe Guy Sr. was attacked first upstairs in a makeshift workout room. There was a large presence of blood. There was also an overturned Bowflex machine. And when Lisa Guy walks back in that house, this kid that she's given everything to defended him to the very end with Daddy. She's loved him with everything in her being. And when she walks back in that house, he's holding a knife, and he attacks her. So the last thing she saw was her kid stabbing her. I'm guessing she's going, why, you know, why? As a mother, when you sacrifice everything you got for your kids, as you can see, it just breaks my heart. Everything he did, even after their death, was to humiliate them. He didn't just chop off their body parts. He first took all of their clothes off. He killed them, stripped them, chopped them, and cooked them. When you kill people with knives, it's not a clean kill. And so he got cut himself. He's bleeding. And so he went to Walmart to get bandages and some ointment to clean it. 
And he went back intending to do more work there in the house. But when he went back, he saw that there was law enforcement vehicles there. So what he did was then return to Louisiana, went to a clinic there, and then just kind of hung out. We were able to sign the warrants to get him taken into custody. The plan was for myself and Detective Sanders to go in with the arresting officers down there in East Baton Rouge. And he was not expecting to be swarmed the way he was when he went to his mailbox to check his mail that next day. We charged him with premeditated murder and abuse of a corpse. We asked him if he'd like to talk to us, which he denied and said that he would like counsel. But just his voice itself, he fit every bit of the profile of make every hair on your back stand up, you know? Joel Guy Jr. insisted that they not plead insanity. His defense team wanted to. It's all they had. He was adamant. He was offended that they were even suggesting that. The prosecution might have been afraid that he would have pled insanity. What's amazing about what he did is he wanted them to try to seek the death penalty. As soon as the garage door was opened, uh, you could feel heat. Once we get upstairs, it's like the world does a 180. Everything gets turned upside down. The crimes allegedly committed by Joel Guy Jr. were unimaginably brutal and shocking. Yet at the start of the trial, the defendant himself seems to do nothing to dispel the impression that he's guilty of the horrific murders. Tennessee has a slayer statute. And what that essentially says is you cannot profiteer from killing. After he's arrested, Joel Guy Jr. was still fighting in court to try to get at least a cut of the life insurance proceeds. His argument was the Slayer statute only comes into play when and if I'm convicted and all my appeals are exhausted. So I want this money now. He kept trying to put the case off, and he also was pushing prosecutors to give him death. He was strategic because if it was a death penalty case, it would take a long time. And if he pleaded insanity, then he could never recover the insurance proceeds. So this was all about the money. He wanted the defense to seek the death penalty because then he would have years and years of years of litigation. Mr. Guy wanted the death penalty. He tried to relieve the counsel that were appointed to him. He tried to represent himself in order to seek the death penalty. Some of the rationale of why he wanted the death penalty is to be in a cell by himself, to be a recluse, to not have to uh, worry about someone with him. And that was one of the factors that the family took into account to ultimately shy away from pursuing the death penalty. They wanted him to be in general population. They felt as if the death penalty in this case was the easy way out for Mr. Joel Guy Jr. The prosecution would not pursue the death penalty because Joel Guy Jr. wanted the death penalty. Now, isn't that a strange one? Once they realized that he actually wanted the death penalty because of the insurance stuff, they said, no, we're not going to give you that. This trial was held during the COVID pandemic. 
so we're taking safety precautions. So rather than do a mask, they came up with this visor with some see-through plastic. Joel Guy Jr. has this on his face, so he looked weird, and it was magnified somewhat with that shield on. God save this state, the United States, and this honorable court. Thank you, sir. Good morning. Everyone. Have a seat. All right, it is time for opening statements. Gentlemen, begin your opening statement. The strategy in this particular case was to be able to, to show the whole picture. So we had to essentially start from the homicides occurring on November the 26th, 2016. And what we did then is kind of trace back. Ladies and gentlemen, we expect to prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that on November the 26th of 2016, Joel Michael Guy Sr. was viciously attacked in his home. During this assault, he sustained 42 sharp force injuries. After he was murdered, the killer disrobed him, meticulously took off his clothes, left them in a heap on the carpet. He left his hands in the room. At some point, Lisa Guy came home, and she too was subjected to a violent assault. She was stabbed 31 times. Nine of her ribs were severed. I kept looking for some show, some sign, not necessarily of remorse, but at least some reaction. Most defendants, killers especially, you will either see them look down, and some of them will actually turn their body away, or they'll start writing. They'll do something so they don't look. And Joel looked. He examined. That was just cold, cold, cold. He has no soul. That's what I kept thinking. I would definitely describe Joel Guy Jr. as creepy. He is just dead on the inside, no emotion. After Joel Sr. and Lisa were murdered, the killer went to work on their bodies. Plastic sheeting was placed on the floor. These blue plastic bins were placed on the sheeting. The killer put Lisa's body parts in one, and he put Joel Sr.'s in the other. And then he covered them with a corrosive substance and left them there to liquefy into some sort of diabolical stew of human remains. Leading up to the trial, one of the things I was most curious about is what is this judge going to do in terms of photographs and what he lets in? In terms of where the bodies were located and how they were, we blurred everything out because there's no way that anybody could view that and not be shocked to the core. Even our redacted pictures of this crime scene are horrific. If you put too much in front of them, it's gonna scar these people, right? And, and, and they might actually, midway through trial, you start losing jurors. We believe that you will find Joel Michael Guy Jr. guilty of every count of this indictment because we will have proven it to you beyond a reasonable doubt. Thank you very much for your attention.
Mr. Halstead, would you like to make an opening statement, sir? Yes, Your Honor. What was the defense? I'm not sure I have an answer for that. The defense attorneys who tried this case are, are, are fantastic lawyers in Knox County. But what I will tell you is they just, I'm not sure they had much of anything. I want to start out by saying thank you for being here, listening to the proof, and making a decision. And another strong part of our constitutional criminal process is that that decision has to be made beyond a reasonable doubt. And we just ask you and know that you will listen to everything very closely in making your decision at the end of the case. How the defense wanted to plead their case was, you know, it's still not known to me. I don't think that anybody took that case expecting to win. The court experience as far as going to trial, it's one of those things that you know that the victim's family are finally going to get their day in court. And until you experience it yourself and you see a victim's family go through that process, it's really hard to comprehend how important this process is. At this point, what are your concerns? You arrive on a crime scene and go through your concerns as a police officer conducting a welfare check. As soon as the garage door was opened, uh, you could feel heat coming from the garage door. Uh, I was on the stand for about an hour and a half to two hours. We were able to really effectively put a, a clear picture on what happened and how it happened in a small amount of time. I would have gone through the foyer, had the groceries in it that was in the floor. There were three cases of beer, perishables. There was uh, breakfast meat, stuff like that in bags that you, you could just see sitting there. The fact that there's groceries with perishables in the bags, did that alarm you as a law enforcement officer? It did. It's, it's obvious that somebody started a task and they've not finished it. Most people put their groceries up when they get home, especially the items that need to go into a refrigerator or freezer. Taking into account everything you've witnessed thus far, uh, how are you feeling at this point? It's terrifying because you don't know if somebody needs some help. There's nothing downstairs that I'm observing that makes sense to me. We go through houses and we clear houses regularly, and most of the time, if you encounter something, you kind of know right when you get in. This was a, a very different situation because once we get upstairs, it's like the world does a 180. Okay. Everything gets turned upside down. It's a very humbling process. It's very difficult as an investigator to have to go up and relive that experience in front of a jury, especially at such a pivotal time involved in the case. This one is one that will probably haunt most of the people at that scene. Do you observe anything immediately after you make it through the gate at the top of the stairs? I observed what appeared to be clothing and sharp instruments and what appeared to be reddish brown staining on the floor, the wall, and you can see straight down the hall and I saw hands not connected to a body. Upon viewing those hands, does that change how you're feeling at all? It's gut-wrenching and it's, it's something that I've never experienced before. Detective Jeremy McCord was a new detective and really had not worked any major cases before. Every time I saw him talk about this case, you could tell it just disturbed him. I've never seen a detective who seemed so haunted by what he experienced. Let's talk about the master bathroom. I went in the master bathroom, and the only thing I saw were two tubs with what appeared to be a, a, a 
body parts liquefying. liquefying. One of the things that sticks with me about this case is the effect that it had on the investigators in this case who had to respond and had to deal with these things in person. As a prosecutor, for me, looking at crime scene photos, videos, autopsy photos, that's hard enough, but to appreciate how hard it was for these officers to respond to a house that had loose chemicals flowing through the air, temperatures in excess of 95 degrees, finding what they found and being able to deal with that. You can never unsee what you, what you saw. Are you experiencing more heat upstairs than you are downstairs? It's hotter upstairs than downstairs. Uh, and how about the, the odors or presence of chemicals? It's, uh, I, I'll, I'll never get those smells out of my head or my dreams. I think of you all the time. You're down your damn life. You're doing well, man. As the trial of Joel Guy Jr. continues, the details of the traumatic investigation into the murders gives way to witnesses who knew the accused defended intimately. And the testimony is just as emotional. State your name for the record, please. Michael McCracken. Did you know the defendant, Joel Michael Guy? Yes. How did you know him? We went to high school together and college together, and we were roommates off and on through that time. All right. Very shortly after Joel Guy Jr. was apprehended for being charged with two counts of first-degree murder, he made various phone calls to Michael McCracken, which were recorded. I take it because you were roommates for some period of time. You knew him? Mm hmm And you know his voice? Yes. And you could recognize his voice on a telephone call, is that correct? Yes. And did you receive a telephone call from him on or about December the 10th of 2016? Yes. And the basis of calling Mr. McCracken to the stand was to be able to introduce the jail phone calls. We had to have somebody to authenticate who was speaking there, someone who recognized Joel Guy Jr.'s voice, and what better person than the individual who was on the receiving end of the line there. I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I don't know that there is anything to say. I'm not here, I'm not investigating. Tell me, tell me, why did I do this? Blah, blah, blah. Those phone calls warn you that anything you say can and will be used against you, and that law enforcement has access to these calls. Well, I've uh, pretty much everything up. I, I don't really have much of a chance of being happy anymore. But I do know Joel Guy Jr. had quite a crush on him. He wanted to satisfy the one friend he seemed to have that he was he was particularly obsessed with. In those particular calls, Mr. Guy was making admissions and, and, and claiming some degree of responsibility as to his future and the likelihood that he would spend the rest of his life in prison. I've been my best friend for my entire adult life. I don't know that that would ever have changed regardless of what he did. I mean, that is, that is the biggest thing here is that I think of you all the time. Michael McCracken is probably the most thoroughly cross-examined witness by the defense. 
And what they did is they essentially tried to establish that Mr. Joe Guy was a loner, that he didn't have family who would come and routinely visit him, that he wanted to be alone. Essentially, I believe that it was a play for sympathy. Did you know him to have any friends? When we were in high school and early college. And did you see in the later years, at least the last three or four years that you were together in Baton Rouge, did you see that tail off? Yes. By the time you left Baton Rouge, would you say that he had any friends at all? No. So was he socially interacting with anyone but you? No. He's not a scare or a friend. The test may have in talking with his stepsisters, we were able to determine that he did not like to attend family functions. State your name for the record, please. Michelle Tyler. And how are you related to the parties in this case? I am Joel Guy's daughter and Lisa's stepdaughter. What was conveyed by Michelle is how Joel was trying to have a good time with everybody on Thanksgiving Day. She described him mostly as a loner and as somebody that did not really hang out with or talk with people. But he was just really uncharacteristically friendly. Thanksgiving was completely different. The moment that I um, arrived, Joel Michael Jr. was talking to us. I I'm not sure Joel Michael Jr. knew my kids' names. For him to talk to them was, was odd. One of the things that was interesting about a Thanksgiving of 2016 as he was outgoing, he was paying attention to his stepsister's children. He would remain outside of his bedroom, would interact, and that, uh, that caught them off guard. He was talking to my kids and he was bringing them upstairs. Lisa had kept every single thing that this kid had that, I mean, he wasn't a kid at that point, but beanie babies that he had collected, his entire life in boxes upstairs. They were bringing those boxes down, but it wasn't Lisa giving that away. It was Joel Michael Jr. giving it to my boys, which was still odd. She, only in hindsight, realized that the fact that he was so cheery and so friendly, uh, that that was actually an omen, a signal of what was to come. I've been told the jury has reached a verdict. We, the jury, found the defendant, Joel Michael Guy, The sister of Joel Guy Jr. has testified that her brother at the Thanksgiving dinner was nothing like the brooding loner he usually was at family get-togethers. And the defense seizes on that thought for their closing argument. The next part of the trial will be the closing statements of the attorneys. Would the defense like to make a closing argument? Remember the facts of the case. That weekend, Joel Guy was outgoing, friendly, and happy in a way Michelle Tyler had never seen him before. Outgoing, friendly, and happy. That was not a man about to commit a homicide. Outgoing, friendly, and happy. That's who Joel Guy was that weekend. That's why we have to look at every fact to see if this adds up. Outgoing, friendly, and happy does not add up to what happened here. Rage, anger, and death. For the defense to claim that he couldn't have been responsible for the murder when all of this evidence existed because he feasted at the family table at Thanksgiving 
is absurd. He could have been excited because this was the last meal he ever had to have with them. You may resume your closing argument, sir. Yes, Your Honor. Outgoing, friendly, and happy. Yeah, I bet he was. But he felt very outgoing and friendly and happy. Michelle Tyler told you that that was unusual. His demeanor on Thanksgiving was strange. He was usually distant. He usually kept to himself. He didn't interact a lot with his family. He didn't have uh, much of a relationship with his family. Why would he be outgoing and happy when he had been distant from them in the past? Well, I submit to you, it's because he was getting ready to get what he wanted, to implement his plan. He wanted to deflect attention from himself. He wanted to be nice. He was playing nice. In his mind, he's thinking, well, I'm going to not give them any reason to suspect me. I'm not going to act like I'm mad. I'm not going to show them I'm mad. I'm going to make an effort. But it was an act. It was a show to deflect attention from himself. Because if he had acted angry, if he'd had an argument with his mother, if he'd had it out with mom and dad over the fact that they were going to cut him off, I mean, how would that look when their bodies turn up later? or? Maybe their bodies don't turn up because he actually carries out his entire plan and is able to flush them into the public waterway. We ask you to convict him. Convict him of premeditated murder. Convict him of felony murder. Convict him of abusing the corpses of his mother and his father. All right, welcome back, everyone. Uh, I've been told the jury's reached a verdict. I think that this jury probably had no problem, didn't lose a bit of sleep over concluding that this was a premeditated act. We, the jury, find the defendant, Joel Michael Guy, guilty of first-degree premeditated murder of Joel Guy Sr. Guilty of first-degree premeditated murder of Lisa Guy. Guilty of first-degree felony murder of Lisa Guy. Guilty of first-degree felony murder of Joel Guy Sr. Guilty of felony murder of Lisa Guy. Guilty of abuse of a corpse of Joel Guy Sr. Guilty of abuse of a corpse of Lisa Guy. The defendant received 124 years for the murders of his parents on November 26, 2016. I believe justice was served in this case. We speak for victims. They can't speak for themselves. So to be able to have the outcome that we did is why we do what we do. I think people look for answers and they look for closure, especially in today's society. And I think the only closure that a loved one can be given that has lost somebody in a homicide is that guilty conviction, that sentence that's appropriate for the crime that's committed. It was very hard to move on from this. It's something that you never expect to walk into, never expect to see. There's a lot of things around the holidays that are not as jovial anymore. I don't enjoy turkey and dressing, and it's one of those things that's it's had, a, had an affect. It's just like my, all my storage bins in my house are either red or green. We don't have any blue ones. You never think somebody could do this to another human being, let alone your parents. And I think that makes it even more to take in as, I mean, this is family. They had sacrificed and given and given and given and loved and loved and loved. And they were repaid with being attacked in their home, caught by surprise, and a holiday where they had to be a little tickled that their son had come home. Anybody that could attack his own parents and chop their bodies up is a dangerous, dangerous person. 
I don't lose any sleep at night knowing that he's in prison and will not walk out alive. Joe Guy Jr. is never going to see the light of day again. And that's the safest thing for society, to place him in an environment where he can never do this type of thing again. Joel Guy Jr. committed a horrifying crime that not only impacted his family, but the community. The murder certainly haunts his siblings, but also every person who helped put him behind bars who can't ever unsee what he did. I'm Tamron Hall. Thanks for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. If you want to see more of our original series, they are available to stream for free on our website. Just check the show notes for a link. And you can see me on my show, Closing Arguments, where we dive deeper into the biggest current true crime stories every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.